if we'd have been discharged from the hospital that day, if that Echotech hadn't been there for that other baby, we would have gone home and she would have died at home. No question. Welcome Getting There fans. I'm your host, Alejandro Garcia Maya. Two million newborns die every year of sepsis, pneumonia, and congenital heart defects. That is eight babies every minute of every day. How do we ensure the early detection of serious conditions in newborns? On today's show, we have Anna Marie Saarinen, co-founder and CEO at the Newborn Foundation, the foundation leveraging health innovations for the early detection of newborn health conditions. In this episode, Anna Marie and I discuss how to make sure newborns don't leave the hospital undiagnosed with a serious condition. And she answers a number of questions such as, how did the newborn foundation begin? Why were over 30% of newborns leaving the hospital without the detection of serious heart defects? How does a pulse oximetry screening work? How did the Newborn Foundation pass a bill making pulse oximetry tests legally required? And much more. Join us in our conversation. Let's do this. Is there a lesson you hold dear from your parents or closest mentors growing up? <laughs> so many. That's an entire podcast in and of itself. <laughs> You know, my parents are amazing. My dad just passed away in December, and I miss him terribly already. But um, my mom is 83 and, honest to God, goes to the Y three days a week. The woman's in better shape than I am, and <laughs> God bless. I mean, she's going to be around to give me advice for a long time, I hope. I but she was a um, school teacher, and my dad was a farmer. And between the two of them, there was just this incredible value of not just work ethic, but appreciating, I, I such an old farmer term, but the bounty of your work. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you're expected to work really hard, on, you know, on the farm. There's no free pass, right? It's a family venture. Before... Jumping into the Newborn Foundation and understanding what it is, what it's about, its mission and all that, mm -hmm. we like to always go over problems that you're trying to solve. So the following facts, they are very sensitive in nature, but it's very important to share and to educate ourselves on. So mm -hmm. this is based on, according to research by the Newborn Foundation, I'm just going to share a couple of facts here that I have in front of me. 10,500 babies pass away every day. Septus pneumonia and congenital heart defects together claim 2 million newborn lives every year. Mm. That's eight babies every minute of every day. That is a lot to take in. 33% of infants leave the hospital without the detection of serious heart defects. And this is definitely one of the major focal points within the Newborn Foundation. Less than 33% of U.S. hospitals have trained pediatric echo technologies and appropriate equipment on site, which is kind of scary, not kind of, which is scary <laughs> to think about. So having said that, can you share with us what Newborn Foundation is and how it got started? 
Sure. And I'll hopefully in my, and through the process, I'll kind of attribute a couple of those statistics mm-hmm. just so I don't forget the first ones you quoted are global numbers in terms mm-hmm. of almost 2 million babies and pneumonia, sepsis, and CHD being responsible for the, the, the largest grouping of deaths from right up there with birth asphyxia, which acclaims um, an extraordinary number of lives in the developing world. The other statistic that you were quoting the third of babies, that's like U.S. or developed world kind of numbers. And you can imagine those are exponentially higher in low resource settings. So I'll kind of shift then back to the U.S. because that's the easiest way to transition to the start of the Newborn Foundation. Thank you. So my third child was born 10 years ago. and. I had an uneventful pregnancy other than I was as a slightly older mom and my had my two girls in my 40s. And so I had a lot of really high quality prenatal care. So extra ultrasounds and that sort of thing to just make sure all is well. And and everything seemed well. And we were going to be discharged from the hospital after her birth. And the rounding pediatrician heard a little bit of a murmur. And they listen with the stethoscope in the U.S. to babies before they go home. And she said, you know what? This is just really common in babies. We're not really too worried about it. We'll check that at her, you know, one week or 10 day well visit. So that's typically how it's done here. You come back into the pediatrician after about a week, week and a half to get your baby checked. And so I really wasn't worried about it, to, to be fair. Once it's your third, it's sort of like if it's not bleeding, you don't worry about it. I hate to mm. say that, but you just really kind of have this false sense of like, oh, everything's fine. Everything's fine. She looks fine. Everything's good. So she came back around about 20 minutes later and said there was a pediatric echo tech an echocardiography cart that was at the hospital I delivered at. So it's not something they typically have there, but it was there that day to evaluate another baby. And she said, oh, the tech is here and the equipment's here. So why don't we just do a quick echo on your daughter so that, you know, peace of mind. I don't want you to worry about it once you go home. And I was like, okay, fine. And do you know, so echocardiography is essentially just ultrasound of the heart. So okay. it's kind of the same tech that we use to look at babies in the belly and find it, but it's, it's specific to looking at the chest area and the heart. So anyway, we brought Eve back and she had the, the technician did a, you know, scan that rolling that probe over her chest to look at her heart and didn't say much of anything. We went back to the room. We had things packed up, ready to go. And then an hour later, there was a pediatric cardiologist in the doorway telling us our daughter was in heart failure and needed to be moved immediately to the nearest NICU, which was at a different hospital. And at first, I I told the doctor, I'm like, no, you must be, there was another baby that had echo. You must be in the wrong it must be that baby. Hmm. And he's like, no, it's not that baby. It's your baby. And so you can imagine like you go from like, oh, we're bringing our baby home in the car seat. I'm going to put her in her crib at home. And you're all excited to like, my baby's heart is three times the size it should be. And her organs are being displaced into her stomach cavity. I went from that to that in like half an hour. So it was terrifying. And I actually couldn't 
leave right then because I had had a, a C-section. So my husband followed the medical transport, the lifelink that took her to the other mm. hospital. And then I got there as soon as I could afterwards in a, in a blizzard in Minnesota, right? It's oh, December. Man. And then over the next week or so, you know, the picture started to become clearer of how severe her type of congenital heart defect was and that she also had this electrical pathway problem with her heart so that she would have um, this thing called SVT, supraventricular tachycardia, where her heart would go from normal rhythm up to 300 beats a minute, just like that. So if you can imagine, that's sort of like a hummingbird, right? Like you can't even, not like a normal baby's heart rate. And they would have to shock her heart back into rhythm every time this was happening. And at its peak, it was happening about 24 times a day. Oh my God. So we really had a talk with the surgeon and the cardiologist at about, she was maybe five days old. And they said, listen, we don't know if she's going to survive the weekend. And if she does, she might have to be put on the transplant list. So we called our families and everyone else to spend a little time with her, not knowing what the future held. But gratefully, we had a really amazing cardiologist who just tried some very unconventional things to keep her heart functioning and to get her over that like really like crisis period so that she could grow a little bit and get a little bit stronger Mm. before having um, open heart surgery in Boston. So we actually had to travel from Minnesota to Boston because at that time there were only two surgeons really in the world that could operate on a baby with her type of defect. And one was at Stanford in California and the other was in Boston. And when Eve got better and Mm -hmm. the surgery was a success, When was it that you said, we got lucky, but others do not? So I think those questions that you just stated were happening even before the surgery. And that's what I was telling you earlier about focus. I just could not get it out of my head that if we'd have been discharged from the hospital that day, if that Echotech hadn't been there for that other baby, we would have gone home and she would have died at home. No question. So that kept replaying in my head. So as an economist, I'm sort of like a data, I'm just a, <laughs> like a little bit of a research hound. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, thank God for the internet. And I just started digging into what the numbers really looked like. And that statistic you had where of the kids that have congenital heart disease, that a third of them were leaving the hospital without a diagnosis. All right. They were going home and nobody knew they had a heart that was a ticking time bomb. That is a huge percentage. Huge percentage in the United States. And one out of five of those babies were being diagnosed by the morgue. So of the kids that were going home, imagine that, that a fifth of them, they would die before they could get help, and the parents had to find out that their baby had a congenital heart defect that had been undiagnosed. So that was just the starting place. So then you say, well, 
we know that echocardiography is like the gold standard for being able to actually diagnose a heart defect. You have to wave the wand over the chest and somebody's got to read the echo. The cardiologists have to read the echo and tell you that your heart, what's going on with the heart. Well, that's not feasible for babies to say all 4 million newborns in the country in the United States would have an echo done. Not, not feasible. There's not enough technicians and the equipment's expensive. The, the process is expensive. It's just can't do it. So How what many else babies? is there? How many newborns? Four million a year. Wow. In the U.S. In the U.S. So then I started finding some literature. And actually, some of it was not even, the studies were in progress and the literature wasn't even published yet. Coming out of Europe, there had been two like small things in the U.S. back in the early, like 2002, 2003, looking at whether or not this thing called a pulse oximeter could help identify cardiovascular problems in babies. And if you know what a pulse oximeter is, but... No, please share. Like if you were to sprain your ankle today and you had to go to the urgent care, one of the things they probably do is put this clip on your finger, this little clip on your finger mm -hmm. that has a red beam of light. And the red beam of light flows through your finger to the other side, and it measures the amount of oxygen in your blood. Yep, I've had that. Right? Mm -hmm. Like almost everybody has now. It's like considered like the fifth vital sign. It's, a, it's very common in hospitals and clinics, and it's a great indicator that something's wrong. So there are these thresholds, and they're not all that different really for adults and, and kids, but there's the specific ones that we look at for babies for a pulse oximeter. and. If a baby's number is below a certain level, there is 0% chance that it's nothing. <laughs> the only way that could be is if you had bad equipment or you didn't apply the sensor properly. And this is using the pulse oximeter? If you use a pulse oximeter properly and a baby is below a certain percentage of oxygen saturation, there is absolutely a cause for it. A medical cause. So it could be any of a number of things, among them congenital heart problem. Mm. So that's where we started looking at like, if a baby's saturations are abnormal, then the person who's gathering that number, probably a nurse or a frontline health worker, screener, whatever, it doesn't have to be a doctor. It's going to be somebody that's using it just like they would use a blood pressure cuff, right? Or a thermometer to take a baby's temperature. So you're checking this number and if it's abnormal, then you would notify a physician to take a look at the baby. And that doesn't necessarily mean you automatically whisk them off for an echocardiogram because you could very well, if you know what you're doing, you, you might say like, oh, I know we've done some blood work or I can count this baby's respiration. They clearly have pneumonia or something else going on that's causing this hypoxemia. But in many cases, if we haven't been able to rule out another immediate cause of why that baby's saturations are low, then we would try to get a baby to an echo. And when you mentioned earlier, the accessibility of echocardiography, it's our problems here in the United States aren't the same as the problems in Ethiopia or the problems in India. And by that, I mean, yes, not every hospital that delivers a baby has pediatric echo tech on staff or a pediatric probe for a machine that can do an echo. That said, there's rarely a case where we'd have a baby that has poor oxygen saturation that we suspect might have a heart problem that we can't get them to an echo. 
Mm. Right. We'll put them on an ambulance. We'll move them to another hospital that has that equipment and has that person who can do that test. And we'll find out whether that baby needs to be at a heart center, how critical they are, what comes next. Those things can all happen in a country like the United States where we have the resources to do that. Those things become more difficult in some places that there isn't access to the equipment that's needed or the skilled person to do the echo. And, and you, um, you had mentioned that the echo is very expensive and it's just not viable to have so many echoes for the millions of babies, Americans born in the U.S. Do you happen to know, out of curiosity, what is a price tag for an echo? Or what does that cost hospitals? It varies tremendously. So first of all, you have to understand like the, what insurance gets billed for an echo or what Medicaid pays for an echo is a different thing than even just having the stuff, mm-hmm. right? The machines that you see in U.S. facilities are two to three hundred thousand dollars, maybe more. I mean, they're, it's a big piece of equipment, mm. right? And the person that's operating that probe and capturing the images has gone through specialized training to know what they're doing, know how to position the probe appropriately and get the images that a cardiologist can then interpret. What was the first initiative with Newborn Foundation when you created it? The first initiative was to get newborn screening for congenital heart disease added to our federal newborn screening panel in the United States. Every baby in the United States gets screened now because of our work. So, And before that, why didn't they get screened? What was the reason? We didn't know. There wasn't enough data. There was just wasn't enough data. We didn't know what we didn't know, right? People knew that pulse oximeters worked to measure functional oxygen saturation in babies, but they were used in NICUs. So if the baby was sick... What are NICUs? A NICU is a neonatal intensive care unit. It's where babies that aren't well or healthy have been already diagnosed with something or premature babies. Those babies are all in that special care nursery or that neonatal intensive care unit setting. And every baby in that place has a pulse oximeter already on them. It's monitoring them like 24-7. So Mm -hmm. it was already being used on babies. We knew it was an effective tool on babies. The difference between having a baby monitored in that specialty care setting that's already sick and newborn screening is that newborn screening is meant for all the babies that look perfectly healthy, Mm. right? This is every baby that's born. And we're assuming these kids are healthy and we're going to send them home with mom and dad. But why we have newborn screening and why the term screening is so apt and so descriptive is because it's meant for every kid. Every kid gets it. And we try to catch the things that are otherwise hidden hidden health problems that these babies would go home from the hospital with and either die or become very sick if we didn't catch it. And with the pulse oximeter, that is not as expensive and that is not as wild to conjure up to be able to have all all the babies with pulse oximeters on them. Absolutely. Because you put it on a baby for a minute, it costs maybe two or three dollars. 
That's wow. so it's about the cost. Difference. It's the cost of putting a, a, a new diaper on a kid in the nursery, right? A hospital puts a new diaper on a baby in the nursery. They bill out two to three dollars, maybe more. I don't know. You know how hospital billing is in the U.S., right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's literally cheaper to do a pulse ox test on a baby than it to is put to diapers. Do, than to put a new diaper on a baby. So, <laughs> so from a cost effectiveness standpoint, it was like zero barrier to entry. All the hospitals, in fact, already had the equipment. All they needed to factor in for now was a little extra time for the nurse to explain, like tell the mom what's going on and do the, do the actual test and to make sure they had renewables. Like if they're using a sensor, you just use an alcohol wipe, you just clean it between babies and then you put a new little piece of either a foam or a sticky wrap that goes around the baby's hand and the baby's foot. And like I said, it's a minute to do it and they get a reading and literally 99% of babies pass. of babies pass this test. It's the 1%, the less than 1% that fail that you need to do a little extra digging and see why they failed. How long did it take you to be able to pass this? And this is a bill that got passed? No, so I'll explain this. So this is how it happened. When you asked me about the timing of Eve's surgery and whether I was... So I started researching this before she even had her open heart surgery. She had her open heart surgery in April of 2009, and after she recovered within six, eight weeks, I reached out to her clinical team at the University of Minnesota and to the State Department of Health in Minnesota and said, listen, I've been doing some digging on this. Here's what I've been able to come up with. I'm very interested in seeing if you'd be interested in doing a domestic pilot here in Minnesota to see whether this is both feasible and effective for helping to identify kids with congenital heart disease that would otherwise be going home undiagnosed. And I fully expected them to say like, you know, that's a nice idea. Crazy mom, like (laughs) go away, you know, whatever. But no, actually the doctors were like, yeah, we'd actually be really interested in looking at that. And the State Department of Health was interested and they thought the timing was actually good to explore it from a newborn screening perspective. So we established the country's first multi-hospital pilot project done in collaboration with the State Department of Health. And while the project was getting underway, I was asked to present on kind of our methodology and how we were doing the project at the State Department of Health. And they have in Minnesota, as in most states, a newborn screening committee. This committee helps decide what things babies are screened for in the state of Minnesota. So I did my presentation and Sky comes up to me afterwards and he's a geneticist from the Mayo Clinic. And he said, hey, I know you want your data, but the timing actually might be really good to pursue this as a federal recommendation for newborn screening for the whole country. And I was like, hmm, tell me about that. So this was my first exposure to the fact that there was a federal committee appointed by the Secretary of Health and Human Services that reviews and recommends to the Secretary of Health and Human Services all the things for which babies are screened for in the United States. And when they decide to add something and the secretary then adopts it, 
it becomes part of what's called the RUSP. It stands for the Routine Uniform Screening Panel, and essentially our version of universal newborn screening. So, because I'm like a lobbyist by trade, right? So once I realized there was an actual policy pathway for adding it at the federal level, I was like, oh yeah, like totally, this is in my wow. wheelhouse. So within three months, we put together the nomination packet and Dr. Ronaldo, who served on the federal, that committee, so he served both on the Minnesota committee and the federal advisory committee, forwarded the nomination and that was January of 2010. So this is about eight months after Eve's surgery. And within nine months of really, really rigorous evidence review by that committee, they voted to send the condition forward to then Secretary Sebelius of U.S. Health and Human Services to recommend that all 4 million babies in the U.S. be screened. So from a policy standpoint, it moved like the speed of light. I was going to ask with the new Newborn Foundation, what are the impacts of having been able to pass this? So in the U.S., so far, there's been about 29 million babies screened for congenital heart disease. Depending on who you talk to on your estimates, on the low end, probably about 5,000 lives saved. On the high end, probably about 9,000. That's incredible. What's a common misconception whenever you're talking to a government or whomever that in what you're doing with the newborn foundation? Well, I don't know if it's a misconception, but it's taken a long time to get the global health community to start recognizing that (laughs) that congenital heart disease is something we can actually tackle. Oh, if we're in a really, really resource-poor setting, there really just is nothing we can do with kids that have congenital heart defects. If they're born with a heart defect, they're just, it's too expensive, it's too complicated, it's too this, it's too that. And it's really taken years to be able to really have that conversation at the level of the WHO and the UN. Mm-hmm. And for funders like the Gates Foundation or Save the Children or whatever, these other folks that we've worked with, for them to understand that this isn't something we can ignore anymore, that 10% of the infants that we lose are being lost to this disease. And if countries could just shave off, they could just do something to treat these children that they'd already be well on their way to making their commitments around the sustainable development goals. They're all signers. All these countries have signed on to those commitments to reach a certain level of reduction in infant and newborn mortality. Those numbers can't be reached by ignoring this piece of what we can pick up with a pulse oximeter. And I'm not saying it's a perfect, it's not a silver bullet, but it is a bullet. And we got to take it. Is there anything else that I did not ask that you would love the chance to share anything? Well, since you asked about it, we have a network of over 200 different hospitals and medical facilities and academic research hospitals, university-based academic research hospitals across these countries that we work in. You know, we try to do as much novel research as we can, but beyond that, we try to talk to 
the teams that are in these facilities and identify what is an unmet need in your space? Like, what do you need desperately to help babies survive and thrive that you just have trouble like getting? They need something to bridge a gap and no one has stepped up to create it or to create something that's affordable or feasible for these settings. So we went after a grant a few years ago to prototype what would be the first automated ultrasound device. Then essentially you put like a blanket type transducer over the child's chest and the images are captured automatically. So it doesn't require a skilled human operator. Literally technology hadn't come far enough along for us to build something like this. What really catapulted things forward, as absurd as it sounds, is the advent of self-driving cars. So we kind of have like Elon Musk's of the world to thank a little bit in that we now have small enough boards that are taking in all this array of information, right? Mm -hmm. A car's moving down the road and it has to take in all this imagery. Make sense out of it. And make sense out of it. Stitch it together basically and say like, okay, this is like a road and this is not a road. This is a human. This is a dog. Like what's coming at you? And we just couldn't do, it just wasn't possible up until then. We're able to do this now on a very small board. And so having that power to be able to take a lot of data and a lot of imagery that's moving all over the place and put it into something that's discernible is really, you know, part of that, the advent of that technology. And so we did a project way back in 2011, like within a year and a half maybe of Eve's heart surgery with my daughter's surgeon in Boston. There was a team, internal uh, engineering team at Boston and then a couple of folks from Philips, the company that does imaging stuff, that were just trying to look at the machine learning part, not even thinking about how you automate echocardiography, right? They're just saying like, hey, we do 50 echoes a day at our hospital. We've got a bailiwick of like baby echoes, right? Mm -hmm. Let's throw them in here and let's see if we can figure out how AI, how a machine can determine between a sick heart and a healthy heart. We actually knew we could do that way back in 2012 with 99.8% accuracy. The machine could tell the difference between a heart that had tetralogy of Fallot or hypoplastic left heart syndrome and a heart that was healthy. And so the phase two of that is bolting that piece on to the automated imaging capacity so that the machine itself could then offer that kind of quote unquote clinical decision support to the person who was using the machine. So instead of needing to put it up into the cloud so that somebody somewhere else can look at it and say what's going on, the machine itself would be able to, with, with a reliable amount of accuracy, be able to say, okay, now person who's holding this device, you need to actually, no one else needs to look at this. There's something serious here. Send the baby onward. Incredible. Incredible. It's an amazing project. I'm exhausted by it, but it's so important and it would change (laughs) the world if we if we can get it done, it'll change the world. So let's fingers crossed. Well, that's this week's episode of Getting There. Thank you all for listening to the Getting There podcast. Very much appreciate it. Be sure to visit gettingtheirpodcast.com to learn about more leaders solving the world's most pressing problems through our videos, games, blogs, and more. 
If you are or have a friend who's a social impact leader using scalable technology to find sustainable solutions for world pressing problems, please reach out to my team and I at guest at gettingtheirpodcast.com. That is guest at gettingtheirpodcast.com. Catch a new episode every Tuesday. If you enjoyed the show and want to spread love back to my team and I, please make sure to subscribe and rate us. Have a wonderful day. And as my grandfather would say, adelante y arriba.